Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I was amazed at how the story that Joe Biden had given the okay for our allies to provide F-16s to Ukraine, that story got such little play, such little coverage. And that story is so incredibly important because that move is now going to set a lot of the geopolitics for the next generation. Because if you are saying that allies are allowed to give Ukraine F-16s, then you're saying that allies have a responsibility to train those pilots in Ukraine on the F-16s. And since it's American hardware, it is American technology that you don't want falling into the hands of the Russians or the Chinese, and you're not even 100% sure you could trust the Ukrainians not to then sell that stuff or to provide access to that stuff at a cost, you have to keep an eye on it. Are we now actually saying that the U.S. is going to be fully involved with the Ukrainian military? Because if, if, if name the country is going to give an F-16, and they have to learn how to use the F-16, and then, of course, there's a conversation about repairing the F-16, how does that not involve us? I've been having this conversation. Doesn't this mean we're now on the ground de facto? This is the part that bothers me. This I find very concerning. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. I spoke to Major Mike Lyons about this, retired United States Army, and what this move signals to him. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now. Retired United States Army West Point man. You can find him on Twitter, MAJ for Major Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, M-A-J Mike Lyons. On the Twitter box, uh, this is how Military.com has it. U.S. will train Ukrainians on F-16 fighter jet after months of speculation. The training is a part two conversation, Major. The first part is Biden given the go-ahead after telling the the Poles, the Polish, no, you can't hand over any, any fighter jets. They're not getting in the way. They're saying do it. What has changed? Well, I think, Tony, a couple of things. First of all, the F-16s are not going to change the calculus on the ground. They're not going to create air superiority for Ukraine. There's still a long way in order for them to find their way to the battlefield. But what, what's really changed is by the administration signaling that we can send uh, F-16s and train pilots and have our NATO allies send them. This is now a fait accompli that Ukraine will one day be part of NATO. As, as Ukraine gets more armed every day, they're going to become the most armed country in Europe anyway. Um, so I think that's what the consideration is here. I think that um, you're looking at four separate comp- countries, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Norway, have um, F-16s, let's say 30 to 60 in inventory that they could ship um, as they transition to the F-35s. And so I, I think the fact that the administration took a signal from NATO countries that were okay with it, which means that they're going to be okay with Ukraine joining NATO, which means this process now has started. This process starting is everything that Russia didn't want and was part of the reason that Russia was so firm in dealing with Ukraine. I'm not giving, saying that they were correct in any way, shape, or form. This was all about trying to keep Ukraine from being in NATO because NATO is a serious threat to to Russia and, and Russia's future as Vladimir Putin sees it. But now because of this invasion, you see those Baltic nations saying, you know mm-hmm. what? For years, we said, no, NATO, we don't need you, NATO, because they have Russia right there on their border. Now they're jumping in 
What does NATO become now? Is, is NATO still this response to Russian aggression? Or is there actually something here about building a NATO so now you can have a response to Chinese aggression? Well, I think it's focused first on Europe. Um, I think there's some fault lines within the alliance when it comes to China. Um, But I think first and foremost, they're concerned about Russia. They're concerned about Eastern Europe. And I was never for that. I was never for everybody in NATO except Russia. But given where this has gone down now and given the fact that the Ukraine military is destroying the Russian army in place and given that once this war is eventually over, they're going to have to have security um, agreements between Russia that, that Ukraine still won't be able to force without an alliance from the West. So I I think that's where it's naturally falling. The question whether it transcends over to China, I'm not sure just yet. I think um, the French, I think there's some of the major NATO countries that are just not willing to, they're compartmentalizing it, let's say. They're they're not willing to kind of go that road uh, just yet as uh, as the alliance will first adjust the two new countries, Sweden and Finland, or or, uh, Finland and and Sweden into, into NATO. And then likely Ukraine within the next, you know, four or five years. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, as we are now allowing Ukraine to get these F-16s. Of course, the Russians have responded by saying this will, you know, this is continued escalation from the West and that we will figure this into our calculus. And we're, of course, able to handle this. You just stated that Ukraine's military is defeating the Russian military in place. We have actual mm-hmm. proof of this. We have actual proof that the Russian military is actually suffering losses at a rate that could cause it to lose and not even gain any part of the Donbass. Yeah, I, I think that the counteroffensive, when it takes place from Ukraine, is not going to overwhelm necessarily Russian forces. They'll try to. I think the attack comes more in the south. I don't think the Donbass is going to be a, a focus, which is why Bakhmut has been somewhat of a feint, I, I believe. Because with the 40,000 soldiers that are anywhere in the southern region from Kherson up through uh, the Donbass region there, if the Ukraine counteroffensive can somehow cut those Russian troops in half, get a large amount of them to surrender, and then threaten Crimea, that just gets Russia to stop. That's the goal here is, is to get the Russian military to stop fighting. Now, the Russians still can bring a lot more to the table. They could still have a general mobilization. They could bring more troops. They can, they can bring more equipment. It's still Russia. They still have this capability to do that. Um, so I, I think that um, there's no vanquishing of Russia. That's not, that's not going to take place. The, the question is, how do you get the Russian military to stop? And there's going to be concessions on, on both sides. And, in fact, some of the concessions might be Ukraine might lose some of its area. And, might, and it might be an area in that, in that Donbass region. You just said something that needs to be gone over. And if people, you've never looked at a map, it's very important that that you do. You believe that the Ukrainian forces right now could be able to control Kherson, which is to the south. It's right there on the river before it empties out into the Black Sea. You Mm -hmm. believe or people believe that control of Kherson is possible after all the bombings that took place there, all the attacks that took place, and allow Mm -hmm. the Ukrainian military to make a run on Crimea and take it back from the Russians? Yeah, threaten it. I, you know, if you look at the Dnepro River, they've got to find a place where they can cross it safely. So the Washington Post had an interesting article Friday about the river crossings and how they're starting to move troops over there. And that's kind of the, the sneaky, you know, precursor to 
that's from a military perspective where the enemy is weakest. Um, they, it's an 800-kilometer front between Ukraine and Russia right now, and we can, they can defend Bakhmut, and they can defend those areas in the Donbass all they can. But the Russians are going to have the same challenge defending it across 800 kilometers as, as Ukraine would. Um, and the, the, the area of opportunity is that place in the south. They could slice through, cut across that river quickly, get troops on the other side, airborne troops. I think they need helicopters, not F-16s, but get troops on the other side of that. And they won't necessarily retake Crimea, but they'll be in a position between them and the Russian military in order to, to, to stop any, a Russian aggression that's going to move the south there. So they threaten it. That's, that's going to be the key there. It's not necessarily a run on it. Uh, they might not have enough troops to do that. I think if they concentrate their combat power in the south uh, and, and, and figure out a way to get 20,000 Russians to surrender, I, I really think the Russian military has got no choice but to, stop, to ask for a ceasefire at that point. But that would require Vladimir Putin recognizing that they have to ask for a ceasefire. And there's been nothing that we've seen that shows that Vladimir Putin is willing to recognize that reality. My gosh, the continued conversations he's having, having, of course, uh, in, in the motherland uh, about uh, this is for the good of Russia, trying to continue to, the propaganda war to get people on his side. He has not shown in any visible sense a sign of stopping what would make you think or what would make uh, mil American military figures think that he'd stop? Uh, yeah, he, he would have to be faced with an inevitable loss there. He'd have to be faced with, again, large numbers of Russian troops surrendering. Those are the assumptions that, that the Ukraine military, I'm sure, are making, which is why they've delayed this counteroffensive, because they can't bring the combat power to that place in order to ensure some level of success. And you're absolutely right. He could turn around and respond where a tactical nuke would work from Russia's side is troops in the open or large uh, troop formations on the eastern portion of the Dnepro River that would be on the Ukraine side. Um, he doesn't care if he renders that area uninhabitable for however long it takes. So I'm not, this is no guarantee, but if there's going to be a plan for a counteroffensive, that, that gives them the most amount of success in order to try uh, to get Russia to stop. They, if they decide to fo focus the counteroffensive in the, in the east and the Donbass and Bakhmut, and how are they going to bring all that combat power, which is currently back in Kiev or back training in Grafenvir, training all over the place? They'd have to get it to this spot, right? And, and to get it there from a logistical perspective, that supply chain is too long. Bring it to the south, get it, get it down there, um, maybe wait on the F F-16s to, to provide some level of air support that comes from the sea, but a quick punch through in that in that region gives them, I think, the most um, the most opportunity for success. Let's take a, a step back for a moment to a couple of months ago when we learned about a leak of of documents of of classified information and one of these pieces of classified information where you still have people under lock and key and they're going to be charged with a whole host of crimes. A guy who was basically a weekend warrior, a a, a uh, was he a reservist? I'm not even 100% sure. I'm not trying to dismiss yeah. reservists. I'm just saying mm -hmm. that this is a guy who should not have had access to any classified right. information. He had access to, to, to everything. And mm -hmm. one of the things that got released was conversations saying that the Ukrainian push this spring would not work against the Russians. That was what one of the communiques was discussing. You're saying that it is working. And so I want to know what changed between that communique and today oh no no i don't think they've started this counteroffensive now i think uh, the counteroffensive could be six to eight months away I, I don't believe they're doing it now i think they're prepping it they they 
have got to align up too many other combat systems in order to think they're going to be successful. They, they literally need to bring everybody home from training, the Patriot training uh, that is taking place in the United States, the crews that are at Grafenvir training, the ones that are training in England. No, no, I, I don't think, I think there's a feint going on in Bakhmut in the West. I think they're trying to you know, kind of like say, hold up the shoulder, so to speak. They try to make it seem like they're doing something there. But I don't think they've concentrated their power, uh, their combat power at all that is anything looking like a counteroffensive, and nor is there any indication they're going to do that. Now, again, you see the reports about them crossing the Dnepro River. Those are solid, good reports, if, that, if those are the case. If that was true, that's, that to me is the precursor of where it takes place. But um, but you'll know it when it happens because they're going to deploy you know the the hundred or so tanks that are coming that they're still really not there yet they're going to deploy uh, the artillery when it comes you got another package of HIMARS just another package of equipment that's coming uh, if you're the Ukraine they they the Ukraine military is not the United States the United States can perform a just in time war the United States can start a war and then and then eventually add to it like we did in Iraq too let's say right. The Ukraine military can't do that. They, they're going to have to concentrate all their firepower all at once. It's going to be all or nothing, and everything's got to be in country, and their reserves have got to be in there. They're not going to be. They're not. Once that starts, they can't stop. So they they've got to have it all there. In that uh, vein, in in this uh, idea of how uh, a, a war starts, you talk about how right now we're training Ukrainian forces on the Patriot missile system. Of course, Ukrainian uh, pilots are going to have to be trained on the F-16. My constant mm-hmm. concern, worry, and fear has been this leads to American troops on the ground. Just my mm-hmm. lack of faith that we're going to be able to train these pilots and train these people to operate these systems without having some support nearby. Now, if you want to tell me that yeah. nearby is Poland and that's not on the ground, we're going to have a very interesting disagreement. Can, yeah. Am I wrong? Can it be done? Can these uh, Ukrainians be trained to work this stuff and repair this stuff without Americans? Uh, I'll use the term in theater. Yeah, no, no. There are going to be contractors, and there's lots of um, F-16 contractors that are out there that that can do this. They're going to be paid a lot of money. So similar to the contractors that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, that's the new way of of warfare right now, too, is is this level of maintenance. But uh, no question that maintaining and sustaining these F-16s, which is why I said initially this is not going to give them air superiority, the, the planes that are going to be coming from uh, those countries are going to be older. They're going to be have been upgraded F-16s, but they're going to be having, you know, there's going to be parts of them that are no longer manufactured. So they're going to have to figure out a way to fix those when the time comes. Plus, the F-16 is an aircraft that requires uh, a good runway. It's not. It's not necessarily a, uh, an aircraft that works well in a in a dirty battlefield environment. They're not going to be like landing on highways uh, and the like. Uh, and then also, when they get to Ukraine, they're going to create a target for Russia to go after if their air bases. So it's again not none of this is simple as it sounds. Um, but I do think that if you if, let's say the three major things, right, the pilot training, they're going to move that up four to six months, and we'll see, we'll find out if, to see how that works. So so that that's the long pole in the tent for right now. They're going to get maintenance and get equipment to sustain the aircraft. They'll get there to pull, and it's likely where a lot of the maintenance takes place. And then the last thing is munitions and, and what kind of weapon systems, because the F-16 is a platform, can do a lot of different things. It has radar jamming. It's got air-to-air. It's got air-to-ground. It's got a lot of different things. And, and then who's going to pay for harms, missiles, and who's going to pay for all those things? So lots to talk about still with F-16s. And this is why they're, not, they're still not going to be there for six to eight months, if that. 
Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Find him on Twitter, M-A-J Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, M-A-J Mike Lyons on Twitter. I appreciate you. More is coming up. I'm Tony Counts. I think Dr. Caitlin Bernard should have been suspended. Her medical license should have been suspended because she absolutely violated patient privacy laws. And if there's not a suspension, then how do you know that violating these things is wrong? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. She is the doctor who, when having a patient, a child who was pregnant, she performed the abortion and then told the story to a reporter. This was the story about that girl from Ohio who was raped, 10-year-old. And so this girl had to come to Indiana for an abortion. I mean, the story is so awful. And when it first came out, it was like, are you crazy? People thought it was a lie. And the way it was reported, people had reason to think it was a lie. It wasn't a lie. But how in the world did the story get out? Somebody talked. It was the doctor, Caitlin Bernard, who still claims that she did absolutely nothing wrong, that she was well within her rights. She did not out this girl, did not give uh, a personal uh, uh, details about this girl. And oh, by the way, they were investigating this in Ohio, so how could she have done anything wrong? The attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rokita, said, You absolutely violated privacy laws. What you did here is unacceptable. And he went directly at her. Of course, the ACLU, I think it was the ACLU. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, lump them in if they weren't the ones. There were multiple groups. We'll say that. Multiple groups. How dare Todd Rokita? He's clearly uh, just trying to be political here. No, Todd Rokita had this from the beginning. He was He was right from the beginning, and the doctor tried to block the investigation. A judge was like, Rokita made clearly unlawful breaches of state confidentiality laws with his public comments about investing the doctor, Uh, but uh, the investigation uh, continued. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. And uh, Dr. Bernard still calls it a political stunt. You did the thing. You violated the rules. You went and talked to a reporter because this was ideological, wasn't it? I mean, I I would actually totally love to do the interview. This was ideological. Why did you talk to a reporter? For what reason did you do that thing? How many kinds of things do you deal with as a doctor where you immediately go talk to a reporter? Did you search out the reporter? Would you have searched out a reporter if they hadn't searched you out? Did you search out a specific reporter or would any reporter have done, uh, been, been acceptable to you? Oh, I would ask all the questions and get the answers. So the story, sadly, horrifically, was real. Re- it's, it's awful. And they all used it on the political left as a story of this is why we need to have abortion as opposed to we have children getting raped. We have children getting raped. Shouldn't this be the thing we're focused on? Focus on stopping this thing? And you'll notice how quickly people stop talking about the fact that the rapist was in the country illegally. Well, that, that was, you weren't allowed to discuss that at all. Caitlin Bernard deserved to have her license suspended, in my view. She got a fine. I don't think it was enough, personally.
the story, horrifically real. And culturally, we got to ask ourselves, what are we doing to stop this? What are we doing? We're utilizing it as a story to push for more abortions? That's sick, twisted stuff. I'm Tony Katz. Yesterday, I had the chance to speak with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's a Democrat, and he's running for president of the United States. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. And one of the things about Robert F. Kennedy, well, I shouldn't say one of the things. We'll get into a couple of things. First, he's polling very, very well. Polling very well. And the Democratic Party is showing right now that there's to a level a bit of enthusiasm for the idea of another candidate. There is at least an opening that has taken place where people are saying, hmm, maybe, just maybe, there is another option to Joe Biden. Did I say hello, Tony Katz, Tony Katz today? I I forget all the time. He's not popular. We understand this, right? He is not popular. No one thinks that Joe Biden is in any way, shape, or form doing the Lord's work. And this was was part of uh, a a presentation on CNN discussing the poll numbers. Listen to this. Yeah, you noted uh, Joe Biden's lead in this Democratic primary. He's at 60% among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents in this poll, Jake. Robert Kennedy Jr. is getting 20% support inside this primary right now against an incumbent president, Marion Williamson. You may remember from last time around, she's running again this cycle at 8%, 8% naming someone else. The idea that the story is Robert Kennedy's at 20%, he's gone up from the 19%. You can argue, hey, Tony, it's only 1%. He can now say he's in the 20s. So the psychological of that, the presentation point of that, it shows growth, all things that Robert F. Kennedy can use. The story here is that Biden is only at 60. Biden only at 60 amongst his party. Not amongst the nation, amongst his party, is a real story. It's a real, real subject here. And it matters. And so I I, I had this conversation with Robert F. Kennedy yesterday. Of course, you can find the video over at Rumble, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Uh, You can find it. I, I have it everywhere. But I wanted to make sure that we understood something. You understand that Robert F. Kennedy... You may agree with him with his take on COVID and vaccines and forced mandates and how he was silenced and others were silenced and how wrong that is. You understand that he's a leftist, right? The difference between him and an Ocasio-Cortez is that he is not a Marxist. He is not engaging, I should say, in the, in the Marxist way of engaging. He's not calling you a name. He's not trying to go at you personally. He's not engaging in in those levels of warfare. But if you listen to his policies, 
his policies are not conservative policies. And it's very important that everybody remembers that. This guy is not a conservative. And in my interview with him yesterday, remember I spent 20 minutes nose to nose with the man and I could have gone for an hour. And I engaged levels of pushback. Some people notice, they're like, Tony, look at you. I'm getting better at it. I, I, I so want to hear people speak that I don't want to interrupt them. But there comes a moment where they're just going on and on. You got to stop it. And there comes a moment where they say something that requires a, hey, you got to redefine that. Or you got to not redefine, but really explain that. Because this, so for, for me, I'm, I so want to hear what people say. I don't want to interrupt. I want to hear it. So then I can break it down. We can all break it down. But sometimes you got to, yeah, well, what, what, what is being said here? What is it that you're actually saying here? So in the conversation yesterday, I'll share part of it with you right now. Uh, got into how he was really silenced regarding his takes on COVID and COVID vaccines and how maybe that take that maybe the political right likes, and I shouldn't say maybe, they definitely like, maybe people see you differently than you really are. And due to that take, some people view you as a conservative-minded person. Politically, that's that's not the totality of your politics. You're very, very strong on the idea of climate change not only being real, but something we have to be uh, aggressive uh, uh, about. You have made a series of statements on that. Politically, you, you do remain well within that Democratic, if I could say, progressive party not not the conservative side but you feel definitely silenced over that your your feelings and your takes on covid yeah on the climate issue you know i have a different take than a lot of other environmentalists and it's been consistent over many years which is to focus uh because you know frankly um what i found over my many years 40 years as an environmental advocate that Republicans and Democrats are all environmentalists at some level. People care about, they don't want their kids to be poisoned by toxics. They want to preserve sacred places. People want to go to places to hunt, to fish, to enjoy, to good, to enjoy the outdoors. They want to preserve our purple mountains majesty. And so I focused on those issues rather than climate. I mean, if you, you know, I believe that climate change is real and that it's a crisis, but I don't insist that you believe in that, you know, and I understand why a lot of people don't, because it's it's lines on graphs, it's studies and, and nobody really has the capacity to, to read or assess. And so I'm not going to insist that people believe in that. There are plenty of reasons to end our addiction to oil and coal that have nothing to do with climate, that have to do with national security, that have to do with making our children healthy, that have to do with preserving sacred places. You know, we're cutting down the Appalachian Mountains. 500 biggest peaks on the Appalachian Mountains have been leveled. Um, we have we filled 2,200 miles of streams in eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. Nobody wants that. Uh, the waters are poisoned in those states. Um, we've poisoned every freshwater fish in North America with mercury. Uh, the And that's coming from coal-burning power plants. The acid rain from those plants has uh, has deforested the high peaks of the Appalachian from Georgia to northern Quebec and has sterilized those lakes. And, you know, and on and on, there's half a trillion dollars of healthcare costs in this country, pulmonary, respiratory, uh, 60,000 deaths, millions and millions of asthma attacks that come from ozone and particulates. So there are better ways 
to, uh, to, to fuel our economy in more efficient ways and cheaper ways. And what I say is that we should, um, we should rely on free markets. We should end the subsidies to carbon and to everybody else. And that we should let the markets describe, decide. So I, I think that's a little bit different than maybe where you were uh, in, in the past with, with some of the, the climate conversation. Uh, but certainly, um, do, you, do you see yourself as a free market guy? And, and I mean, I know that you brought, just brought on former Congressman Dennis Kucinich uh, to run the campaign as your campaign manager. And when we go back to the days of, of the Obamacare conversations and things like that, he was to the left of Barack Obama. So, you know, uh, the, that choice of campaign manager is, is a discussion of uh, politics and beliefs. I just want to make sure we understand where you are. Do you feel that that your beliefs have changed or do you believe that you're still a Democrat in the, in the vein of Democrats, whether we're talking about uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan or, or someone like like that? And and that it is the party that has gone further left than you would be OK with. I am a Kennedy Democrat. I'm a traditional Kennedy Democrat. I don't think my general views have changed, you know, at all about, uh, you know, about specific things. They change. If I see facts that are different, I'm going to change my opinion. But, you know, my views, my sympathies, my general philosophy and approach to politics is the same as uh, it's been consistent my whole life. I've always believed in the free market. And I've always said for 40 years, you can go back and look at my speeches from the 1980s. And I was saying the most important thing that we can do for the environment is to have real free market capitalism, which we do not have in this country. We have corporate crony capitalism in a, tr- a true free market would uh, is the enemy. Uh, it, a true free market would would give us efficiency and efficiency is the elimination of waste and pollution is waste. And a true free mark, a true free market would require us to properly value our natural resources. And it's the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wastefully. And in a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay his production. If we're going to stick in this climate conversation, sir, talking to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., candidate for president on the Democratic ticket, give me a conversation about climate, about the environment, where you differ from Joe Biden, because if we were to talk about Green New Deal, you're somebody who has supported that concept, the concept of the Green New Deal. That seems to be now part and parcel of where the Democratic Party is today. Give me something concrete that is different than where Joe Biden is right now. Well, my approach is different. My approach, as I say, is a market-based approach. Right now, it costs about $3.2 billion to build a gigawatt, a one gigawatt coal plant. It costs a, uh, to build a solar plant costs $1 billion. And then it's free energy forever. And the problem is the blockade to uh, to coal to to more efficient energy sources, variable and you know and renewable energy sources is, is mainly uh, the grid. Is we do not have a grid that can get those those electrons to market. So almost every farmer in North Dakota wants to put wind turbines in, on his property because a a cornfield 
without a wind turbine is worth about $800. With a wind turbine, it's worth $3,000 or $3,200. So everybody wants to do it. The problem, and, and there's huge amounts of capital are waiting around the borders of North Dakota, which is the windiest place in North America and one of the windiest in the world outside of Antarctica. Everybody wants to finance that. The problem is you can't get those electrons to market and we need to build out the grid system and create a marketplace that turns every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant. I I don't like the I do not like the top down approach to environmental um, uh, to the to, to uh, climate. And I really turned against that during the COVID crisis because I saw how that crisis was manipulated. Mm-hmm. I Davos Billionaires Boys Club and Bill Gates and others use that crisis a pretext for clamping down totalitarian controls. And I see that the same thing is happening with climate, that it is being misused. It's a real crisis, but it is being misused by uh, by the same cabal. Is, is, is that the representative Ocasio-Cortez's? Is that the Senator Dick Durbin's? Who is well, that? I, I no. think those people are just, are you know, are uh, some of the things that they're doing are part of an agenda by people who are probably much more, I would regard as much more powerful than them. people in the, um, you know, the, as I say, the kind of World Economic Forum, the intelligence agencies, people who are, um, who are more interested in control than they are in actually preserving the, you know, you know, the, the uh, infrastructure of our ecosystems. There are a series of questions that I want to ask you, but I, I, I promise to keep the time and to keep you on schedule. So we're going to have to have you back. That's got to happen because we, I want to dig in more. But I, I must ask uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, he uh, announced yesterday, let's say you get the nomination. The Democratic Party says they, they want uh, four more years of Kennedy. Uh, in 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 the White House, uh, who would you rather face, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? I think, uh, I mean, my the poll numbers that I have right now um, show me doing much better against Ron DeSantis. Um, so I, you know, I guess from a strategic point of view, that it would be better for me to face him. Uh, but I do well against both of them, so I'm I'm. Uh, and I'm this campaign either. is, you know, I, I mean, the thing is with Donald Trump, I'm in a very good position to hold him responsible for something that nobody else is holding him responsible for, which is the lockdowns. Lockdowns were the biggest economic catastrophe in American history, and they were Donald Trump's lockdowns. It cost our country $16 trillion. They engineered a $4 trillion shift in wealth from the middle class in this country to the super rich. He closed down 3.3 million businesses and, you know, shifted all of that wealth to Amazon and, you know, to the people who were then collaborating with the White House to censor people like me who were criticizing the lockdowns. And it was a war on the poor and the war on the middle class in this country in every way. And, you know, I would love to have a debate in front of the American people about that with, you know, with uh, President Trump. Now, he may get his wish one day. He may actually get the the wish. Look, do I think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to beat uh, Joe Biden for the, in the primary? No, of course not. I, I don't believe it at all. But if he gets to debate Biden, it's going to be bad for Biden because even with Kennedy's voice issues, even with that, 
he's he's going to be more adept th- than Biden. He's going to push him on these things. I think it's going to be bad for 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 Joe Biden. But I wanted you to hear where he is on these issues, even if you agree with him on the COVID stuff. This is not a conservative. And just because somebody speaks in a nice way in terms of isn't attacking you with their words doesn't mean that their words have uh, a, a, a smart policy attached. They don't. If you ask me if I'm supporting Robert Kennedy, uh, no. Nice guy. I appreciate the interview. I'll do it again. There's so much to discuss. But I think he's wrong on the policies just about everywhere. I'm Tony Katz. Every company out there has a corporate social responsibility arm. Diversity and inclusion is a key initiative. They're yeah. just going to go after everyone? Yeah, here's, look, here's that tweet. He said, this is Matt Walsh, a far-right commentator. Here's what we should do. Pick a victim and gang up on it and make an example of it. We can't boycott every woke company or even most of them. But we can pick one. It hardly matters which. He actually said that. And target it with a ruthless boycott campaign. Claim one scalp, then move on to the next. That's what it's all about. Yes, Ben Collins of NBC. What are you acting so shocked by? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. First of all, far right commentator. Anybody who you disagree with is far right. It's because you're so far left. If you're going to get these companies to stop pushing this woke nonsense on you, you may actually have to push that company by getting people not to buy their product. Why are you surprised by this? Do you not... Do you not know where the political right learned how to engage these tactics? Here, let me give you a refresher. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. That's right. We watched the left boycott Rush Limbaugh and everybody else under the sun, and the right learned, oh, this is how it works. And for the left, this is how it's going to work. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz.